Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast. Uh, I got a cool interview at the end and a bunch of stuff to talk about. And also tomorrow night is going to be the live podcast with uh, the nerds, the retro roundtable. So it's uh, myself, Renee from DB Electronics, uh, Zach Voltar, and um, then Nick and Steve from HD Retrovision. This will be our second one. Uh, I thought the first one went pretty well. So uh, please tune in and uh, and really just join. Ask any live questions. And of course, if uh, you know if anybody is not around for that time zone or something, it will be on YouTube and I think maybe Twitch as well the next day. But at the very least, definitely on YouTube. So uh, please tune in. And uh, it, you know we usually get way nerdier than I would in this podcast. So uh, if you're into that stuff, we hope to see you there tomorrow. First up, I wanted to talk about that backlit Game Boy Color that was on Taobao a few, I think a few months ago now. Um, I'm sticking this first in the podcast because I'm not sure who bounces around with the new uh, timestamps down below. But uh, basically, it was a Game Boy Color that had a brand new screen that was designed for it, that uh, it looked great in the pictures. Um, and But it was only uh, on Taobao that would not, and that's a site in China that won't, um, that seller won't ship to the U.S. or really many other places outside. So I used a, a contractor called Biner to go buy that for me and then ship it to me. They never shipped to them. Uh, so the Taobao seller never shipped to Biner. And I think I may have just lost 150 bucks. So I wanted to put the word out for anybody that ordered one of those. Um, if you did, did you get it? Uh, if you didn't, you know, maybe start contacting those companies right away. And uh, if you were thinking about buying one, definitely hold off until we figure this out. So I hope I didn't just lose 150 bucks. Um, and I hope it's a real product and not just a scam. It looked awesome. Up next, a couple of updates to the Nintendo Switch and Zelda Breath of the Wild. Um, first, I guess uh, there were two articles written that talked about um, how the game was made, and they kind of went into great detail about different aspects of it, um, as well as they talked about things that were cut from the game. Uh, couldn't be things that would, would kind of break the open feel of the world. Um, so that was both were good reads that I found entertaining. And uh, a couple of other hardware-based things for the Switch. Uh, the Joy-Con controllers now work with 8-bit Do adapters. So um, the ones for the NES Classic, and I think their Classic controller ones, uh, like for the Nintendo, I believe, also work with it. I'm not sure why you'd want to, but just figured I'd let everybody know. Um, and then also somebody teased a jailbreak of the Switch. So uh, while I love uh, hacking of everything, um, I'm actually kind of surprised that it was hap it happened this early, and I really hope it doesn't lead to piracy just yet, 
you know, when a console's at the end of its life cycle and, and new games aren't really being made for it anymore, that's kind of when I like to see that, to make sure that everybody gets to rip and save the games and these things are preserved. But at such early in the life cycle of a console, I mean, two weeks in, uh, I really hope it does not lead to piracy and that this uh, stays locked down so that all the amazing developers working on games know that people actually have to buy them and can't steal them until long after the contract's over and they wouldn't make money anyway. Um, also, I, I heard uh, Evan Amos on the Second Opinion Games podcast uh, last Sunday, and he actually beat the game, and I tried to drag him on here to give me tips and talk about things, but I don't think he was around while I was shooting this, but maybe I'll drag him on next week and, and just get a quick overview of you know, his thoughts on the game and uh, quick tips. If you want a detailed overview, definitely check out their podcast from last week. Um, but yeah, hopefully we'll see him back on here soon. I had fun interviewing him last year, so any excuse to get, uh, get fun guests back on, you know, I'll always jump at the chance. Next, the Wii U emulator CMU, which allows you to play Wii U games on a Windows PC, just is now able to render video at 4K. Which is pretty cool. I mean, it's a bit extreme, but uh, especially for Wii U games, but it's just fun to see all the progress people are making with software emulators and just to see everything you could do with it. Um, I know when Dolphin, I mean, it was a few years ago that I tried it, but when Dolphin had a few major updates, I played Mario Kart Wii rendered in 1080p, and it looked gorgeous. I know some games don't really line up to it as well, but um, I guess uh, certain games, when they render at higher resolutions, certain aspects of it render wrong. But when I played Mario Kart, at least the few tracks I tried, it was awesome. And I would assume that it's the same with the Wii U emulator. I assume some games are going to scale a lot better than others. But I'm certainly interested in trying it out, and especially because you could connect the Wii U gamepad to a Windows compu uh, computer and everything. So... Maybe someday uh, you'll actually get a better experience out of emulating Wii U than actually playing it. Next, last week's update to the Analog NT Mini was the Atari 7800 core. Kevtra says that you should make sure that the 7800 ROMs you use have an 128-byte header on them, and the ones from Atari7800.org do not. But the good news is, Smoke Monster put out a 7800 set um, in his current ROM packs. Uh, and I don't know if it's still in beta or not, but uh, it's definitely, as always, a, a comprehensive set and just makes it super easy to use. You just dump it right in the directory. Um, also, I believe there was a, a small little bug in that version on Friday, the version 1.5. So Kevtris quickly uh, put up a fix for it, 1.6. But as always, if uh, if you just want to link to my page on the Analog NT Mini, the current firmware will always be on top, and it's, uh, you know, if the firmwares come out Friday night, it's never past Saturday morning that I update it. I usually, I've gotten the past few right on that Friday night, but you never know, maybe I'm out drinking or something and I won't get to, to, get to it until the morning, but... Um, definitely, for at least until Kevtrisk has a, a more stable website or a place to post, I would just use my page as uh, as your go-to every Saturday morning, Friday night, depending, to get the latest firmware. Next, someone on the SMS Power forums has posted what he's calling speed-up hacks for a few games. 
So I guess uh, the person Fercules, I think that's how you say his screen name, um, basically he used a method from Calindro that edits the ROMs to make them a little bit more RAM efficient, and I think there's just less slowdowns on the screen. Um, I really only had a chance to play them for like a minute each, and I didn't notice a massive difference, but I'm not very familiar with these games, so I imagine if this, these were one of your favorites, then you'd probably notice a difference right away. Um, there's Rambo, Ashura, and Secret Commando, which is actually kind of funny because it's listed both the ROM uh, and on SMS Power, it's listed as Secret Command, but the title screen actually says Secret Commando. So I'm not sure if uh, Maxim and the boys made a mistake on that or um, or if there's a story behind it. But um, yeah, I mean, it seems pretty neat, and I, I love hacks like this. Any way to tweak the old game to kind of fix things or just kind of improve it based on knowledge. And the person who wrote the original tutorial, Calindro, is also the guy who made the Emulicious emulator, which is really awesome. Um, and that itself actually also had an update recently. And that even emulates using uh, an EverDrive. So people who are doing ROM hacks or writing homebrew could actually emulate how it's going to work on official hardware with an EverDrive. So these guys are just getting more and more creative every time I turn around. Uh, great work to all of them, and if you're an SMS fan, definitely check those hacks out. I know this isn't exactly retro gaming news, but I figured it was worth mentioning that the latest PlayStation 4 update is out, and it supports boost mode for the, the newer PS4 consoles, which at the very least is supposed to help some games have a faster frame rate and load a little bit faster. Um, I have a video playing that shows the loading times, and I saw another video that um, I couldn't really tell the difference. So maybe it's one of those, you know, in order to notice the frame rate, you got to be playing the game type of thing. But it's good that they're trying to improve, you know, across the board. So they're not just focusing on their new software. They're just trying to take any software that might be able to, to use it and give it a little boost, if you will. Um, and the same update also allows for support of up to 8 terabyte hard drives. So it should give a pretty good storage expansion for PS4 users. A bit more PlayStation news. There's a rumor going around that the PlayStation 5 will be out in late 2018, so I guess about a year and a half from now, which on the one hand, it's kind of weird because I thought they were going or planning on going till 2020 with this latest version, but it also makes sense. You know, a year and a half after the Switch, they're probably going to try to beat Microsoft a little bit to it, so maybe what we're going to see now is a, a small spec bump every few years rather than a massive redesign. But, hey, I guess time will tell, and it's always, I mean, this is just a rumor, so it could be completely made up, but I thought it was pretty neat and might want to mention it. Next is more progress on the Neo Geo Pocket flashcard, the SD-based one. Um, I guess they now have a 3D-printed plastic case for it, and it looks great. I got uh, video playing, um, and I guess they're just making steady progress, and hopefully they'll be able to, to pre-order fairly soon. There's a few new demo videos out of the game Sonic Mania, which will be coming out soon on the Nintendo Switch, and I think possibly others, um, and it looks awesome. Uh, I guess a huge part of that is Sega's taking a lot of the indie developers that worked on other Sonic games, uh, including Christian Whitehead, who did the amazing translations onto modern platforms of Sonic 1, 2, 3, and CD. I believe. I know I played one uh, in CD, uh, his version of it, both on my iPad and on my Apple TV, and it, it just looked gorgeous. He did such a great job with that. So he's on the team, as well as a bunch of other huge fans of the game. 
So it, just in the video footage alone, it really looks like true, like a, a real Sonic 2D side-scrolling game. Uh, I'm pretty excited about it. I loved the originals, and I thought they got better over time. You know, one was brilliant. I think two was just the perfect little... Uh, next step and three was my favorite because I loved that you could save because that kind of uh, in my opinion it allowed me to ha take my time and look around the levels a lot more rather than knowing that you know it takes two hours to beat the game and you know I don't want to sit or, you know, sit on a couch all day long so um, I really liked going back and playing the old ones with save games as well same with Sonic CD uh, you really get to travel through the future and past worlds and really see the differences so just the fact that that core group of people is working on it I mean that alone means the game's probably not going to suck I, it looks amazing though um, and they confirmed that it is actually running at full 60 frames a second the whole time so it's just going to be a really cool, really smooth experience. So anybody that's a fan of those games, the specific link I have also has the commentary on it, which gives you kind of a cool insight. Um, but definitely just check out their channel and see, because if you're a fan of the Sonic games, this is a pretty big deal. I've been seeing a lot of pop-ups and notifications lately about something going on, at least in New York, about the right to repair your own consoles. So I guess I wasn't really aware of any of this, and uh, maybe if I'm wrong, please correct me, but it seems like the argument is that bigger companies aren't supplying local shops or even people with parts to fix their own console. So if you have like a, you know, a broken Sony console, you can't just order a part from them and fix it yourself. Um, and I kind of have, I have strong feelings about this because I love tinkering with things. But first and foremost, I, I have to side with the company on the fact that you shouldn't be allowed to do your own warranty work. Um, as soon as you open that console for anything other than like replacing the hard drive, because that's not really opening the console. Um, I mean, that's uh, no telling what could happen when you're in there. And I think that should void your warranty. But if you don't mind, if the warranty's already over, if you don't care, there's no reason why you shouldn't just be able to get, you know, actual OEM replacement parts. And, you know, I think it should be available to everybody. I can at least understand only selling them to authorized resellers, but I don't agree with that necessarily, but I get it. Uh, and it's just, it seems like such a strange thing that even today people are still having their stronghold on it. So I definitely would love to hear everybody's opinions down below. Let me know what you think, and uh, or, or even if I just got the argument totally wrong and I'm not understanding, which, sorry if I did. Next, Darksoft uploaded a few videos of his Neo Geo ROM car in action, um, and this latest firmware answered all the questions I had last week about it. So basically, uh, you could load up to four games in flash memory, and uh, by default, the cart will boot to a screen where you can see those four games. Um, and there's nice, colorful artwork. It's pretty cool, actually. And then when you click on the game, um, it instantly loads right away. Uh, you could also set it to load directly to the game or just directly to the menu in case you always want that option of selecting everything else. Um, and it, my assumption last week was correct, that loading from SD to flash is 15 to 20 seconds, and once it's in flash, it's instant. So I thought it was pretty cool. I'm glad he keeps posting these updates, um, and I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to buying one when they're available. Um, and just an update, too, um, I'm still using the Neo SD, and it still has the problem that I showed last week, which the good news is, as long as you just quickly uh, reset to menu if you see it, uh, if you see any of the video interference, then uh, when you reload the game, it's gone. So it's certainly not stopping me from playing any games, and it really, I mean, it only wastes 
five seconds of time. So it's not, you know, it's not a huge deal, and it's not a deal breaker either. If you were thinking about buying the Neo SD, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say don't because of this. So, but I'll keep everybody updated, and hopefully they'll have a fix for that soon. Next, Firebrand X has his final update to his color palettes. I'm smirking when I say that because I think Wolf has told me this is the last revision about ten times already. But um, I think I think it's a good thing that he keeps pushing forward and that he's never really satisfied with his work, especially when new ways to experience the palettes had come out, such as the Analog NT Mini. It really shed light on a lot of very minor tweaks that he was kind of going back and forth on. So if you're using the NT Mini or if you're playing on a software emulator where you could just dump a new palette file in, definitely check out his site. He also has the webpage updated with better explanations of what everything are, and he changed the names of a few of them, which makes it easier to follow. I believe, I'm not sure if it'll be out by the time this airs, but there's also an update for um, the NES RGB board, if you want to put these on a real NES. And uh, I'm really, really pleased with them. I think the uh, NTSC hardware is the one that I really, I use on everything. Um, my flat screen and my NT Mini. I haven't had a chance to flash my NES RGB yet, but I think it's a good thing, I guess, because of this latest one. Um, I really feel like, at least to my eyes, it looks like what it was when I was a kid, just that TV on uh, through composite, or on a regular TV through composite. Um, the PVM style one, he says, depending on your flat screen display, might actually look better or more accurate um, to the original, what it would look like on a CRT. I found that on my Plasma, it doesn't, but I bet you it's totally different with LCDs. So, um, But the beautiful part about all of this stuff is options. There's always options. There's also those two palettes from RGB Source, which are very good. Um, he has one that's also direct capture, just uh, like Firebrand X's, and then he has one that's um, kind of a blend of uh, you know his subjective opinion mixed in. And they're all great. Um, my my personal favorite's definitely that NTSC palette from Firebrand X, though. Uh, but I mean, it's the perfect thing about choices. Just use whatever is best for your eyes. So um, I'm sticking with that one, and I am really happy with it. And uh, we're all gonna have a big laugh when uh, the next time I get an email from Wolf when he says this is the final version of the palette. Yeah, right, dude. Just like this is the final version of my website. <laughs> but keep up the awesome work. We all really, really appreciate it. And lastly, the GDMU, that's the Dreamcast Optical Drive Emulator, that went on sale last Saturday and sold out in about 15 minutes. So while a huge congratulations to the team for making a product people want, uh, what the hell, again? <laughs> um, this is something that's been really bugging me for a while, uh, and I want to actually debate this tomorrow on the Nerds podcast. So if uh, I really hope you guys tune in for a million reasons, but... I mean, this is something that's really been bugging me for a while, and I'm not just some greedy nerd sitting behind a webcam asking people for this stuff and criticizing. You know, I worked in uh, that company where I, I had a huge hand in a lot of these things, including manufacturing. You know, so I know the manufacturing process, I know how much goes into it, I know what lead times are, I know the tremendous amount of risk. But I also know bullshit answers to things like, why are you always sold out? There's a lot of really good answers to that, which hopefully we'll be debating tomorrow, but there's a lot of bullshit answers too. So um, I don't know what the story is with the GDMU. Maybe he did everything right. He or she, I don't actually know anybody on the team, but maybe, maybe they did everything perfect uh, and they just happened to sell out super fast. I have no idea, but um, this 
we uh, we who sell things in the retro gaming community got to be a little bit better about this because what you're doing by having your products out of stock first and foremost you're losing money you're losing your own money and secondly you're forcing people to buy garbage you know all the time people are you know well i really want this i really want this oh it's out of stock it's out of stock ah oh, fine i'll just go buy that knockoff on ebay and now they've wasted their money on garbage and you've lost a sale so let's debate this tomorrow on the nerds podcast i think it's best to start with that because it's friends so if it gets heated we're not going to take it personally it's just business but we should really you know as a community start helping each other out and get these things out better than we have been because it just there's no you know there's no reason why we can't have these things coming out on a regular basis from now on and not have long wait times and everything else you know some people do it right people that do the open pre-orders like game tech and super g you know everything can be improved everything in life can be improved of course but you know, generally speaking, the thought of just giving somebody my money and whenever it's done, it comes in. I like that. A lot of people don't, I guess. But tune in tomorrow and, and you know, maybe those guys will, will verbally beat the crap out of me and I'll change my opinion. But I uh, I don't know. We'll see. Real quick for the Q&A stuff, um, I have a few things I was going to sell and I figured I would offer it to you guys before I put it on eBay. But I have an AV Famicom that's in perfect condition. Um, comes with some random baseball game just to make sure that you get to test it. But it's modded with the high-def NES, um, and this is the, the latest version that sticks right out to the edge of the plastic, so you don't need to cut your HDMI cables. It all fits perfect. Um, this one was done by Voltar and also had a cap replacement done. So if you were looking for a high-def NES modded AV Famicom, uh, this is, I mean, you can't really get any better than this. Um, it's a uh, you know perfect condition comes with the game also comes with um, an OEM power supply not aftermarket and an OEM Nintendo controller not the dog bone I don't know what happened to that one um, but the only reason I'm selling this is because I have a pile of them um, I got a bunch of uh, different Nintendos with different mods um, and I, I just I need to get um, cash to do a few more projects that are coming up uh, also I have a DVDO iScan micro. Um, so I originally bought this because I thought maybe I'd be able to plug the open, scan, open source scan converter, the OSSC, into this, and then have this make it compatible with my TV and everything else, um, and it didn't work that way. Um, this is pretty much brand new. It's got like five minutes of time on it, but uh, it comes with the remote, um, the unit itself, uh, the IR receiver, and I think there's one other power cable for it. Uh, it's not just powered off of HDMI. Um, so this is this goes up to 4K as well, I believe. So if anybody wanted one of those, uh, definitely, uh, you know, I'll give it away pretty cheap. Uh, and I also have a bunch of musical instruments for sale, a couple guitars and an amp and stuff. I'm not sure if anybody's interested, but the last time I uh, I posted stuff for sale, I was terrified that you guys were going to get pissed and say, you know. Hey, don't use this to peddle your wares, but it was the opposite. I actually was able to get a couple of consoles in the hands of people that really wanted it, um, and it saved them money. They didn't pay the eBay fees. I didn't have to deal with the eBay crap. Uh, it actually ended up working out really well for a bunch of people, so I, uh, I hope it's the same this time. But if anybody's pissed that I'm starting to, you know, I'm occasionally selling stuff on here, I'll, I'll totally stop because I'm not trying to make this some way to unload my stuff. I really just want this to be, you know, the community podcast letting everybody know what's up so uh, if you're interested just let me know okay on to the q and a's 
Kevin B. posted um, that the software exploit that allows you to play burned games on a Dreamcast without the need of a mod chip is based on the Dreamcast's ability to play karaoke CDs, the MIL CD format. The problem is that the data of the game wasn't designed to be read this way. Long story short, most rips you will find will cause excessive wear on your laser assembly, leading to premature failure. There are some people in the scene that reformat games to be more friendly with the mill CD format, but there are few and far between. Anyways, things like the GDMU are very important to preserving the Dreamcast, as the drives have a fairly high failure rate as it is, uh, with even regular games. Um, so thank you for the input. I had completely forgotten about the mill CD thing, uh, completely and totally forgotten about it. Um, and I agree, and that's why I tried to buy the GDMU. Um, but, um, you know, that's one of the many reasons why. You know, I want to preserve the original hardware, and that way if I need to go back and use it that way, everything's fine. Um, I guess my only... I think a few people misunderstood my point last week, and I wasn't saying I shouldn't buy the GDMU because I could already play CDs. I was just wondering how many people would. But I guess the joke's on me because they sold out in like 15 minutes. <laughs> so if they're ever available, um, I will definitely buy one. And thanks again for the input. Next up, Lionheart posted uh, a link to BU's Twitter stream, um, which he described how to pronounce his screen name as well as the Hegon emulator. So I think I just spelled out B-Y-U-U because that's made sense to me. Um, and I always pronounced it Hygon, not Hegon. So I think, whereas most of the time I laugh at myself for mispronouncing everything wrong, um, this time, uh, going from B-Y-U-U -U to B-U, I think a lot of people probably made the same jump. But uh, thanks to uh, Lionheart for posting, and thanks to B-U for, for actually do, uh, putting that out there and uh, letting everybody know how to say it correctly. Next, Marek Steele asks, regarding the analog cores, any news on controller adapters that would work with it and the, the separate cores? Um, I believe Kevin had said that he's doing the cartridge adapters first, and he's going to do the controller adapter afterwards. So it's knowing Kevin, it's not too far off, but uh, it's not within the next few weeks, I would think. Next, stuff posted in regards to uh, trying to preserve cases and boxes. Um, he linked to a site called RetroProtection.com that has custom boxes for games and cartridges and e even the actual boxes that some of the um, the consoles themselves came in. Um, and I never I never got into that, but a bunch of my friends did. Uh, Justin, a.k.a. Goodwill Hunter. Um, and you're totally right. I'm glad you posted that link. Um, if we're all worried about preserving these things and keeping them alive, it's kind of like comic books in that you would, you know, you don't just leave a comic book you know, on a on a coffee table and just for years. If you want to preserve it, you put it in a mylar sheen, and then you you have the boxes and stack them. So, you know, uh, thank you for the link to that, and it's something I'll look into for some of my much rarer stuff. Uh, but yeah, that's that's cool. I think putting stuff in the protective cases like that certainly is going to help preserve them for even longer. And lastly, Seth, one of the developers from Conquer's Hyrule Tale, uh, posted in the comments. Um, and said that uh, the game certainly isn't for everyone with the foul humor and mature themes, but hopefully some will, someone in the future will make a PG-13 version of it, as once I fully retire, the game will become open source. So, uh, a few things to that. Um, first of all, I love the game and I love the humor. Uh, I, I understand that that's not for everybody, uh, but um, you did an awesome job, all of you guys did. Uh, but the open sourcing when you're done with it, 
thank you so much. I love that stuff. You know, I I really think that people should hold on to whatever they make as long as they want. Close source, do whatever you want with it. It's your your time and effort, your business. But whenever you're done with something, um, it's just I hate to see any projects get lost to time. So uh, stuff like this really makes me happy. You know, keep you know hold on to that for until you're done with it, and then when you are, just kind of release it open source and let people do whatever they want with it. So thank you for that, and thanks again for making a fun game. I can't wait to dig deeper into that one soon. Okay, up next I have James, a.k.a. Professor Abrasive. He's the guy working on the optical drive emulator for Saturn that just plugs into the back with no modding required. Um, I had a great time on the interview. It was good to get to know him. Uh, very, uh, a lot of cool things that we went over and talked about. I screwed up at the beginning and introduced him as Dr. Abrasive. Figures, I always mess something up. But um, overall, I mean, I had a great time uh, recording it, and I hope you guys have just as good of a time listening. And as always, any comments, criticism, whatever you got, put them in the comments below, and I'll try to respond to every one of them. So take care, and I'll see you guys next week. Hey, guys. I'm here with James, a.k.a. Dr. Abrasive. How you doing, man? I'm really good. A little bit sleep-deprived, but really good. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've traveled all over the world, I've been lucky enough to, and the time change thing still kind of cracks me up. I mean, it's, what, 9.30 in the morning for you, and it's, uh, you know, 5.30 for me, so I'm drinking a Newcastle, uh -huh. and you're probably eating your cereal <laughs> or something. <laughs> little bit, little bit, yep, I'm still on the coffee at this hour. <laughs> so, um, I really appreciate you coming on, I've been following your project since I first saw it on Assembler Games, which is now non-existent, I guess, or something. I don't know. That site goes down about twice a year. So, um, yep. But um, I guess, obviously, I wanted to talk about your main project and then anything else you got in the pipeline. But I always want to know first um, how everybody gets started in these things. You know, do you, uh, do you have a technical job for your day job or, you know, are you just a fan of this stuff? Uh, you mind just giving a quick background? Well, so, I mean, I've been sort of interested in in electronics and technology since I was a kid. Like, I always knew that was the way I was going to go. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always done it in my spare time as well. So, as it happens along the way, you know, I did a degree in electronics, did a doctorate in biomedical engineering. So, I, I do do tech in my day job. Um, but really, it's, it's always been a, a personal hobby. So the retro tech thing is kind of interesting. I was never allowed to have a game console when we were growing up, but we had friends who did. So, you know, there's always that, that thing you can't have. There's that little bit of desire, that little bit of interest. Right. And then later on, um, just sort of looking at that under the hood, the, the way that 90s era technology is constructed is something that, you know, I, I've spent a huge amount of time uh, over the years just reading stuff. Um, including about how things work under the hood. And, you know, you, you just piece together bits of information and go, well, you know, this, this kind of style is interesting. It, it's driven by the technology of the time. Uh, so a lot of it is a lot simpler than it is today, funnily enough. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, today's tools are so powerful that you can reach into them uh, and for not a whole lot of money and not necessarily that much time as well, you can actually get your hands dirty in these sort of classic architectures with all these interesting and weird constraints that you can play around with. Mm -hmm. So the the constraint angle is kind of a big thing for me. You can pick up a modern computer, you can do anything with it. Whereas you pick up an old computer, it's much harder to do, well, anything to get right. started. Um, and so working within those constraints gives me a challenge that I quite enjoy. I'd hate to do it for a day job, but in my <laughs> spare time. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So, um, 
What uh, you know? What was the Saturn, or what was it that drew you to the Saturn? Was that just your favorite console out of all the ones your friends had? And it's kind of funny you know, when you said like that one thing you can't have as a kid. I always wanted a go kart, and uh, no one would ever <laughs> let me have one. And then I think, of course, as as kids do, all I wanted to do was race cars. From you know, from the moment that I was told no to a go kart until I actually started racing cars. So <laughs> I, uh, I I feel your pain there. <laughs> Yeah, so that's interesting, actually. I like my cousins had a Saturn when I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, and I remember playing like Daytona once or twice, and that's it. I, I do not remember Saturns at all from that period. Like, mm. uh, my mates mostly had Nintendos, um, a friend had like a Mega Drive, um, that was about it. Um, but what sort of got me into it was uh, the chip music scene. So, through a friend of mine, um, who in, I don't know, 2008 or thereabouts, uh, started getting interested in chip music um, and ended up going from this like little bit of interest. He came to me and he said, you know, uh, I want to try making some Game Boy music. Can you make me a flash card? This was back when they really weren't widely available. Mm-hmm. And everything you could get was from like 90s game piracy gear. <laughs> right. Uh, so, you know, I'd started messing around with that and that kind of snowballed for him. He ended up running gigs that have now turned into part of like an international chip music festival, oh, that's uh, awesome. which continues to run. In fact, as Square Sounds, it's kind of taken over the mantle from Blip Festival as international festivals go. Um, so it turns out there's this whole huge scene of, of all these people who really love uh, old hardware for many different reasons. And one of the reasons that I keep hearing about and keeps coming back to me is very similar to mine. There's these musicians who like how constrained the hardware is. It gives them these really tight boundaries they have to be creative within. And for some people, that really brings out their creativity. So that's something I personally sympathize with a lot, even though I don't really have a musical bone in my body. I have tried to make chip music, never worked. Yeah, I can say as a wannabe musician myself, when I was uh, recording the album that we did, the constraints that I put myself under, for demos, anything. Cheat away for demos. But for actually recording the album, I constrained myself to record the exact same way that people have been doing pre-digital. So, you know, if you make a mistake, you know, you don't have to go back to the beginning, but you go back to the last natural stop in the song, and if the song doesn't have one, you are going back to the beginning. And putting that kind of, you know, weird constraint and pressure, I, I love I love how it, all the sound, all the songs from a guitar player's, player's point of view sound real. You know, it sounds because it is. Whereas, I, so I completely sympathize with, you know, purposely wanting to put yourself in a box musically. Um, I've never actually messed with chiptunes, which is weird, because I'm a nerd that likes video games and plays music, so you think I would be the first on my list, but that's really awesome, and that's, uh, no one's ever actually put it that way to me before, so, yeah, that's very cool. I'm going to keep that in mind. I'll quote you if I use that in another talk. <laughs> so, that's kind of how I came to that uh, that point. So, I, I had this involvement in chip music, um, and in fact, a few years ago, I made a Game Boy cartridge, a flash cart that was aimed specifically at my musician friends. Um, so, you know, they'd get up on stage and do performances, but they had, you know, these dodgy 90s carts that were really unreliable. Um, and they regularly lose their work when they tried to back it up to their PC via parallel port and a <laughs> Windows 95 PC under their bed and, and that kind of stuff. So that's that's where Professor Abrasive's Dragon Derp came from. So that was a, a USB Game Boy cartridge that um, 
USB with no drivers as well. Uh, that was another issue in the scene at the time. There were kind of USB carts, but no one could get them working on Macs and, and all this other nasty stuff. Uh, and it didn't have battery-backed save memory either. It uh, instead had a very expensive hunk of uh, ferroelectric RAM, which is this wacky sort of uh, space material that just doesn't ever lose its memory uh, without battery power. So that was a fun piece of engineering that sort of, I sort of cut my teeth on building a product and getting it out to people. And um, so I've still been selling those up until quite recently. I just ran out of time to make them. Um, so hopefully they'll be back someday. But so that was another thing that, that sort of kept me engaged with this chip music thing, uh, even though, you know, I, I don't go to gigs these days. Like uh, there's not much of a scene here in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that led me to the Saturn in the end because someone, uh, in fact, I think it, pretty sure it was a guy named Laserbeat who's an English expat living in Japan, in uh, again, in the chip music scene. And he mentioned to me, oh, man, you should you should do something with the Sega Saturn someday. It's got this crazy sound chip with like 32 channels of FM synthesis, which is just uh, from the FM scene is, is kind of unheard of. So the Saturn came at a really interesting time. Um, it was on the cusp of the sampled sound revolution. So these days, if you want to play a sound from a computer, you synthesize it or you play back a recording or whatever, you just play samples that can be anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, play, play out the waveform straight from memory. And that's only become possible because memory got cheap enough that you can do that. Storage got cheap enough. CPU time to synthesize things got cheap enough. Mm-hmm. The Saturn was hovering on the edge of when that became possible. The consoles before it all used hardware synthesizers, which make really quite fixed sounds. So you go from your bleeps and bloops with the early stuff up to the Mega Drive for Genesis, which did have FM synthesis, amongst other things. So there are some quite characteristic sounds you get from that. Right, and just, so to, this, just to clarify, both for myself and I guess for people watching, but on consoles like the Saturn, um, you know, the soundtracks are obviously just CD quality because they're CDs, but all of the game effects inside the game obviously aren't coming off the, um, you know, the CD soundtrack. Those are loaded into memory and run off of the FM chip, correct? Yeah, so the Saturn actually goes both ways. It has this FM chip that's very powerful. It was designed by Yamaha, and I think the idea was they'd use it in standalone instruments as well. Like, it's got MIDI and stuff and all these features you'd really only want in a synthesizer. Mm-hmm. I don't think that happened. But it also has sampled sound playback. It doesn't have a huge amount of memory, but it has some. Um, so you can load samples into some of the RAM on the Saturn and play them out from there. So a lot of games will use sampled sound effects and, and just play them out that way. Hmm. Oh, so they, they built this thing standing with one feet in each camp, which is a really curious way to do it, I have to say. Um, the whole Saturn hardware start to finish is kind of curious and strange. And, um, you know, I always kind of... Because, you know, that came out at a time where inter- the internet wasn't what it is today. It wasn't even a shadow of it. So all the information you'd get as a kid is, you know, rumors at game stores. And every game store you'd go into had a completely different set of rumors about the Saturn. <laughs> and uh, my favorite was that the cartridge port was actually... Uh, it would play Genesis and 32X, and with an adapter it would play Master System, and then the CDs would play Sega CD and 32X CD as well, and that's why it was going to be so expensive. And uh, (laughs) we were all going nuts over that as kids, and then when it came out, and it's just this beast of a machine that only plays Saturn games, and was really expensive, and, you know, not too many games out at launch, it's just, uh, you know, it kind of took us all at at a bit of shock, so, you know, as, as kids, I don't think we could afford it at that point, I was still quite young. 
Actually, now that I think about it, it kind of reminds me a little of the Switch launch. <laughs> Not that many <laughs> games, a little bit expensive, but anyway. <laughs> but at least the discs tasted better. True. <laughs> but um, how did you get the name Dr. Abrasive? Well, so the abrasive handle is from a very long time ago from, you know, video games and IRC and stuff. And then um, a friend of mine, Ilka, did the pixel art for the Dragon Dirt uh, cartridge label, mm -hmm. which is uh, quite quite a work of art. I'm quite pleased with that. And he decided to brand me as uh, Professor Abrasive. So I'm there in a lab coat and uh, with pixel art version of the curly hair I used to have. Um, holding my little Game Boy, so that's where that comes from. There's, there's no, no significant oh, meaning. Gotcha. So, is it? I've heard you referred to as Professor Abrasive and Doctor Abrasive. Which one? It's Professor Abrasive. It is technically Professor Abrasive. That's that's the brand. Yes, I think gotcha. uh, Citrix got a little mixed up because these days I am actually a doctor. Um, so. Ah, all right. Well, I think I may have screwed that no, up I'm in the intro. A, Sorry. A <laughs> but, no, not at all. Awesome. So, um, what what actually made you make the step of doing the Saturn thing? Because, you know, it's the it's a conversation I've actually had quite a bit lately with people, and that, you know, optical drive emulators are, are such a necessity. Because, you know, right now, sure, if you want to play, you know, same as always, you want to play your imports or your patched games or homebrew, you get you know um, just a mod chip or something, or even on some consoles, you don't even need it. But, you know, CD-ROMs die all the time, and the parts for those are getting harder to find. I remember a couple of years ago, I can get CD replacements for, like, $8 on eBay. And it's just, it's crazy to see, you know, you can't even get them anymore. So it's such a, it's such a necessity to preserve hardware, especially because by using optical drive emulators, you don't use the CD-ROM drive, and that could last, you know, a million times longer than if you were using it. Um, what kind of pushed you to do that? Was it just uh, your buddy saying, you know, hey man, we need a way to play these games, can you hook us up? <laughs> that's that's quite a good question, actually. Um, so, I mean, at the time I got started, I didn't realize that um, CD drives and the, opt the lasers or the optics or something in that chain actually dies of old age. So I, I had this satin and it would sometimes boot really unreliably off legit games. Uh, what's going on here? And it's gotten worse over time as well. Um, but no, what motivated me was coming from this chip music angle, I'd been in Japan um, for a chip music festival, gone to a super potato um, where they still sell, you know, packaged consoles uh, and bought a satin off the shelf. Hmm. And so I shoved it in my suitcase, took it home, forgot about it. Um, and then when I got home, a couple of months later, I dusted it off. I was like, great, I want to run some code on this thing. How do I do that? Uh, and I very quickly found out that there are no mod chips for them, or at the time anyway, I, I couldn't buy a mod chip anywhere. Uh, I don't know if that situation's changed. Um, they and come so and I, go, really. Yeah, so I, I started looking into ways that I might be able to basically bypass the copy protection in some way. So the first thing I did was, like with any topic, I did heaps of reading. I went back and forth over the internet, all the forums and stuff. And there's all these wild rumors about how the CD protection works and how you can burn it or you can't burn it or this, that, and the other. So, um, you know, reverse engineering is one of my favorite hobbies. So I just sort of dug my heels in and, and went for a sniff around. Um, I ended up finding quite conclusively that, no, you, you really can't burn those CDs. It, it is definitely impossible. And then by the time I'd gotten to that point, I'd, you know, I'd gotten hooked enough that I, I just kind of kept on digging. Um, <laughs> 
so really the the satiator comes out of following that digging to its logical conclusion i broke in so deep that i was able to run my own code on the thing uh to achieve that goal i had to build a piece of hardware and then now that i've built the piece of hardware it's like well actually this is something that would be really helpful to a lot of people this is not you know, it's not like i set out to do this in the first instance but that's what ended up happening yeah isn't that the truth with so many things in life <laughs> yeah absolutely so it's um it's a you know it just to play off of what you just said when i started this website i started it as like a shared google doc because i thought maybe a handful of my friends might want to learn how to do some of this rgb stuff and then it became like a, a mini quest to try to put all of the best info for this so that anybody who wanted to could make or get the best out of their own consoles and the more I learn and the more I see about all this stuff, the more I realize I'm also starting to lean towards hardware preservation. So there's a bunch of guys already that are working on projects to preserve software and a lot of really good a lot of really good places. But other than the video game museum in the US, I don't really know anybody that's preserving hardware. And, you know, both in the ways of actually sticking them on a shelf somewhere for people to look at and use, but more importantly, guys like you who are making these optical drive emulators, you know, this is things like this are the only way we're going to, you know, that and, and, you know, pretty much perfect FPGA emulation are the only way we're going to really experience these the right way in the future. And it's weird because I, I always liked history, but I never thought like, uh, I never thought I would be compelled to do anything about it. And it's like, you know, all these things that I, you know, like I went into, um, a museum in China, right in Beijing, when I visited once, and it was just absolutely blowing my mind, all the different artifacts that you get to see there, and, you know, the way some things were exactly the way they are today, and some things are, are totally different, and I really hope that with video games, because, you know, video games weren't just for entertainment, a lot of the things that came out over the years, you found out were, you know, somebody made a project, Sega worked with DARPA for one of their projects, and that's how they came out with one of their modeling things, because they're doing simulations of war, and it's just, it's such a huge part of history, both for gaming and not, so it's, uh, as strange as it sounds, it's important to me to, to kind of push forward how preserving hardware is kind of something everybody needs to think about, and I mean, this stuff like this is great, and there's a lot of really good optical drive emulators out for different systems, but the one that really, um, I mean, just sets yours apart 100% is that you don't need to mod the console. You just plug it in the back. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that still the case, or is that... Oh, yeah, absolutely. It just goes in, the, uh, goes in the old video CD slot, and off you go. So was that something, was that just like a personal goal, or is that something you set up from the beginning, or is that something you stumbled upon after you started doing all this? Well, it was kind of, the, the, that was the way I, I kind of broke into the system. So, I mean, I, there's, there's a lot of this, uh, or a lot of the way I build technology in my spare time, I'm able to lean on the kind of aesthetic angle. Like, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes there's a good way to do something and a not so good way to do something. And, and I have the freedom and the choice to choose to do it the good way. Um, another reason I'd hate to do this for a day job, because you'd be under the pump, is get it done. Mm -hmm. Um so in, you know, digging into the copy protection, I don't think I ever really thought about doing, um, you know, like emulating the drive itself. Um, I was much more interested in actually bypassing the copy protection at the level at which that's implemented. So where it's checked, mm. uh, that's, that's the sort of natural reverse engineering thing for me. Now, it turns out that coming in through the video CD slot, there's a way to inject encrypted code into the CD block controller. And... 
I basically found that back door. I reverse engineered the encryption and all this stuff so that I could inject my own little thing in there that sends its tentacles throughout the CD block's brain. And I go, well, I could just turn off the copy protection with this because there's a little flag you can flip and that'll stop the copy protection right there. Um, then I was like, well, I could make an optical drive emulator with this instead. That'd be cool. I did not set out to make an optical drive emulator. I just wanted to turn off the copy protection. So your original goal was to just plug something into that. Uh, basically, it's a mod chip that doesn't involve modding. You just plug it in the back That's and play exactly CDs. That was the original plan. Which is still very cool, but this is better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so when I, when I first thought that up, um, I sort of missed a bit of a trick with that port. I thought I'd just be able to plug in a hunk of ROM. Um, so in the actual video CD card, there's a piece of ROM in there. Most of that ROM contains the MPEG player, like the user interface and stuff that mm -hmm. runs on the main satin CPUs, like a game. Um, but a little tiny bit is this encrypted code that can get injected. So they used it to patch features and I suspect to fix bugs um, in the system so they could actually have their, their video CD thing finished after the, the system went to press, if you will. Um, and I thought it would be as simple as just sticking a piece of ROM on a card, plugging it in, having it flip that little flag and be done with it. Um, it turns out, though, that as part of the boot process, it verifies that all of the hardware on the MPEG card is working properly. And there's a few tricky things, like there's half a megabyte of RAM on that card that it uses for, you know, decoding purposes. Uh, and as part of the test procedure, it writes half a megabyte of random data and then reads it back and expects it to be the same. Um, so I, you know, tried booting this thing up with just a piece of ROM attached to it and nothing happened. I went, uh... And so after a bit of digging, I realized it was doing all these checks and to deal with all these checks, I was going to need a more complicated piece of hardware. And I was like, well, if I'm doing that, I might as well go all the way. Um, and that's how it turned out. Jeez. Um, so would you, uh, we talked a little bit before, would you be able to give us a quick little demo of what it looks like and uh, maybe a little bit, you know, a little bit more of uh, another invention that you told me about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's give it a go. All right. So um, basically, as many people will know, I recently uh, had a kid, and as part of having a kid in a fairly small living space in uh, here in Sydney, uh, I basically had to pack down all of my delicious big development desk with all my stuff on it. Um, <laughs> so not only my tools, but there was always space there for my satin to sit out and um, and a monitor. So you know, when I was working on it. I'd be at the desk, I'd be booting it up, I'd be watching what happened on the screen, I'd be sitting there with the gamepad as well, pressing the buttons. Um, and of course, now I don't have a desk, I can't really do that. And another thing is that I'm spending a lot of my time being in particular other parts of the house looking after the kid, um, which is fantastic, but it's not beat about the bush, but um, it does sort of put a crimp in development if I'd have to be in you know, staring at a monitor that's wedged in the corner of the uh, the living room or something. So I'd sort of scratched my head and went, well, you know, let's do some more technology to solve this problem. Um, and I figured maybe I could set myself up with a satin that just sort of sits on the shelf somewhere and I can access it over the network, a totally headless setup. Um, and, you know, my initial thought was like, this is really easy. I'll just get a video capture card, you know, one of those $10 USB dongles that, We'll pick the video out of the satin, um, and then I'll be able to see it from anywhere. Easy. I didn't think the next step for another couple of days, which was, oh, wait, 
I'm going to need to do the gamepad somehow. What am I going to do there? Um, so to cut a long story short, for the gamepad, I ended up developing something that's now turned into a little standalone board that you can plug into the front of the Saturn. So this has two little ends that plug into the, the uh, game controller ports, mm -hmm. and then it's got a USB microcontroller on it that you hook up to your PC. And so it's able to emulate the full range of Saturn peripherals, including like the multi-tap and the mouse and keyboard and everything else. Wow. And that's sold from a computer. So now I have the Saturn sitting in the corner of my living room. Its video output goes to a capture card, goes into my little media center PC that's sitting there. And then uh, gamepad commands come out of that media center PC over USB into this little emulation port. Oh. Uh, so that's all well and good. And then when I first set this up, you know, I, I set up some video streaming over the network with like FFmpeg and VLC and stuff. And, and it worked, but I had to have two windows open because I had one thing that I'd written that took the controller inputs and sent them to the Saturn. Then mm -hmm. I had another window bringing me the video back and it was laggy as hell because that video stuff is not designed for real-time streaming. Um, so, you know, a little more head scratching. I went, well, there is actually a bunch of technology that people have made for real-time video streaming, and it's all about teleconferencing. Mm -hmm. People have been doing that for a long time. And I realized that recently, fairly recently, last couple of years, they added uh, WebRTC to the you know common set of standards that the major web browsers support. So WebRTC is this really complicated standard for basically video conferencing, uh, but it also lets you do real-time data streaming back and forth uh, and a few other bits and bobs. So... A couple of days later, I had a working prototype of this WebRTC interface that basically I go to this web page and it pops up this video that is in real time, whatever's coming out of my Saturn. And then it opens a data channel going back to the server as well. So when I press keys in my web browser, it sends them as gamepad inputs to the Saturn. So, so, now, uh, so now you're able to walk us through what the interface is remotely. So this is double remotely. You're you're doing it over your network to the Saturn over over Skype to me over yeah, that's pretty crazy. So you're you're watching this through the same web interface, you know, logged in separately from your side of the world. Um yeah, so I can even show how it looks from boot up if you like. Yeah, actually um, that would be great cuz I kind of I would love to see how this is going to work from people from power on, you know, to the when the game starts. So here's what you get. Um, we go through the Sega Saturn logo, which I've spent goodness knows how long waiting for over the years. <laughs> um, and then a little quick flash of the menu before we, or the CD player rather, before we pop into the menu. Um, and the menu then just shows whatever files you've got on your SD card. In this case, you know, my testing disk doesn't have a whole lot of stuff on it. Uh, and is there um, subdirectory support for this, or just whatever's in the root? Well, there is absolutely, but also this is a really like super simple thing that I built it as a placeholder. It was really just to start testing stuff with. Mm -hmm. um, so before I release, I'm planning on making something that's actually nicer to use and has some proper user interface design behind it. I mean, it's my personal opinion that you know the those very utilitarian cricks rom cart uh, things are fine i think the bottom line is as long as people don't have to plug it into a computer and run dos code to launch a game like on that jaguar <laughs> rom cart i think everybody at the end of the day is just happy that they get to load you know a mod free solution you know yeah absolutely but i mean i i also want it to be nice to use you know i mean i've used enough painful software in the past <laughs> um and, you know, we'll, we'll see how that gets on and, and how much time I end up having because I certainly have not got a huge amount of spare time to put into this at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But yeah, so you get a menu. It's got the files in it that are on the system. Um, you know, you use your keys, pick one, and then you hit your button. If I remember which button to push, which is always fun, fade out and off you go. Jeez, that's cool. Um, that's pretty much all there is to it. So uh, another feature that I'll have finished in the next couple of days is being able to press A, B, C, and start and reset back to the uh, game chooser menu. That's a big help rather than power off, power on. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that'll be nice, and it's uh, it's nearly done actually. So that'll be all the all the polish that gets on that side, I think. Um, so this is, uh, and by no means am I downplaying this, by the way, but uh, but this is basically where you're at right now for the menu and features. That's uh, that's what we have to show at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So the disk emulation is fantastic. Um, I'm really happy with the state of that. Uh, it's got CD audio. That was a relatively recent addition, so you get all the music tracks from all the games working as well. Um, so that core functionality is is there, and it's been there for a long time. Um, really what I'm working on at the moment is bringing together the parts that actually turn it from a, like a tech demo into a product that people can actually pick up and use. So it's uh, physical design, like it needs a new circuit board, it needs a housing so that you're not just handling this bare circuit board and shoving that in your satin. Uh, it needs a menu people can use. It needs firmware updates so that we can, you know, change stuff in the field if that ever becomes necessary. Um, you know, all these, all these fairly small things, um, but they kind of add up. There's still, still yeah. a bit of work to do. All right. Awesome. All right. Well, that was very cool to see that in action. Uh, the one thing I didn't tell you though, was when you held up that PCB, um, you weren't on camera, only the video was, uh, would you mind holding up the PCB again for the control report? So here we go. Mm-hmm. This little thing has two uh, connectors up the top that fit very neatly into the uh, controller sockets on the front of the thing. Mm-hmm. And then it's got a spot for a, a USB microcontroller. In fact, it's, uh, it's a little Arduino clone just because that was the easiest thing to hand uh, with a USB port on it. Out of curiosity, is that something you'd offer for sale as well? I don't see why not. It's uh, I, Again, I made this and I thought no one else would want it. And I, I mentioned it to a couple of friends who are into the satin. They're like, wait, I, I actually want that because, you know, like they've got this setup where they've got all these consoles in their living room and they p- want to play them with modern controllers and be able to switch between them, right? They don't want to have all the old controllers hanging out the front. You go, right. oh, wow, okay, someone actually is interested in that thing. So, all right, sure. Yeah, so, there's, yes, there's I, actually I, a lot of reasons I could think. I don't think your average person would go home, plug that in, and then run commands you know, over the network, but I do know... I actually know a buddy of mine, Ben, who builds his own custom controllers, and I think something like that would interface directly with some of the things that he builds. So I, it's uh, you know I don't think you'll sell a million of them, but if you make them, you, people will definitely buy them for. Uh, I mean, probably reasons that you and I can't even think of at the moment. You know. No, but that's the great thing, right? As long yeah, as they can it. find it, know that it's there, and. Um... And also, I, I will open source the code so because you can just use any old Arduino as well if you want to. So if you're building something else that's already using an Arduino for you know handling a, reading control inputs or something, you could build your own controller with that, no problems. Oh, that's awesome. So you're thinking about open sourcing the code for the controller network thingy? Yeah, do yeah, you, definitely. Do you have a name for that, by the way? <laughs> uh, the, the temporary name is Professor Abrasive Padulator. So, uh, Padulator. Ad- in, in the absence of a better name, that'll do. Gotcha. It sounds like something you'd buy on a porn site. <laughs> Padulator. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. 
All right, well, that that's, you know, I love to see things like that, you know, because, uh, like, a couple of friends of mine make stuff and sell it, um, and they either open source the, the code behind the firmware um, and then keep the, the hardware closed source because, you know, they need to make some money off of it. It's a hobby, but it's still, you know, it's worth their time. But then mm-hmm. they have these other projects that they're like, yeah, this is awesome and all, but this is just kind of, like, for fun, and they open source the whole thing. And it's just, I, I, I love to see stuff like that. You know, it's, well, here's what I, you know, my serious hobby that I really want to work on and support and put the time into, you know, and this is how much it costs. Oh, and here's some fun stuff. Just take it, anybody that wants it. Like, I, I love to hear things like that. So thank you. I'm sure that's going to come in handy for a bunch of different people. Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, you know, I benefit, as do we all, from open source in so much stuff. It's, uh, it's nice to be able to contribute back to, you know, the, the community at large in, in cases like this. Definitely. Um, do you have anything to show for some hardware for the actual uh, device itself, or is that still in prototype phase? Yeah, it's still in prototype. I'm uh, hoping to get... Um, so the next major thing on my list, in fact, in the development is to do a new circuit board, mm-hmm. and then I'm also going to do a housing for it because, you know, handing people a bare circuit board and uh, having them plug it in the right way up as well and not short it out or anything is, it's not ideal. Um, yeah, so correct. in this day and age, you know, we can knock up a 3D printed housing that will solve all those issues and make it just nice to handle and you can shove it in your bag and take it to your mate's place. Yeah, and for uh, hobby projects, you know, I don't uh, I don't think anybody has ever, well, anybody that has a clue would ever complain about a 3D printed um, casing or housing for it. Because it's, you know, 3D printing lately, um, it's not as brittle. I mean, I remember when uh, I first started using 3D printing, it was way before this whole just download your design and print it. And we'd have, like, ba- uh, entire backs of computers built. Uh, when we, you couldn't mount it certain ways because it would just snap in half. And it's not like that anymore. They are a lot better built. And while it's not as smooth as something that would cost you $70,000 for tooling, um, it's it's more than good enough. And it's cool to have. So definitely worth it. So to be fair, okay, I'm going to have to break and grab. Uh, Bub needs a bit of a cuddle. Yeah. I'll I'll just see if I can pick her up and come back. Okay. All right, we're back. Um, sorry. Uh, so what I what I really actually wanted to ask you about too was uh, and help promote, of course, is the Patreon that you're doing. Um, and it's kind of interesting to me because I kind of I've been on both sides of this. So I've been, you know, first and foremost, I'm a gigantic nerd that wants to buy all these things for my old consoles, and I get really excited and often impatient, like we all do. Um, but I've also been on the other side of this. I've done distribution. I've helped out on projects. I have a couple friends that did Kickstarters. And, you know, a lot of the things that people learned in those Kickstarters is they get their money, they make the product, they make a little bit of profit. It's usually a lot more work than they thought. And then years later, they're still supporting and still kind of selling here and there. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, if you include their hours, it's a huge loss. So from that perspective, I thought the Patreon was an awesome idea because it, you know, it keeps you going and keeps funding it. Uh, but the one thing as a greedy nerd I had to ask is, did that, you know, is this thing years away? Is it months away? You know, what is the target date and kind of what drove you to do the Patreon instead of the Kickstarter? Oh, and is there other products coming too that, that, uh, that you're looking for funding for? So... That's sort of something I, I thought a lot about. So back when I did the Dragon Dirt, the Game Boy cartridge, mm-hmm. I deliberately resisted doing a Kickstarter. I waited until 
I was able to fund it out of my own pocket. Um, mm. And I did that in no small part because I wanted to take as long as it took to do it right. Mm -hmm. um, I'd seen in the years immediately preceding that a number of people who had uh, crowdfunded or taken pre-orders uh, for products and then, you know, something had changed in their life or it just turned out to be difficult and, you know, it became very stressful when it went pear-shaped for them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, life's stressful enough. I, I, I'm not trying to start, you know, a profitable business here. This is never going to make me a lot of money. Right. Um, it's not like I'm going to quit my day job or something. I'm doing this because I enjoy it and I think other people will enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, so the whole uh, big bang crowdfunding where people give you all this money and then you have this huge obligation and then, you know, they want, understandably, they want to know where it's at all the time, um, is a model that I, I just doesn't suit the way I develop my personal products. Mm -hmm. um, it's where I'm not full-time. Some weeks I'm going to have a lot of time for my projects. Other weeks I'm going to have none. Um, and that flexibility is really, really quite important. Um, so, I mean, the Patreon is certainly an unusual choice for, in this case, something that is it's, it's almost a single focus project thing. But I also wanted to take this opportunity to basically be, be a little more communicative uh, and the Patreon format really encourages me to do that. Mm -hmm. So when I'm developing these things and I've been doing this reverse engineering or building these things and so on and so forth, it's actually, you know, it's been for me a really interesting journey. I've seen a lot of cool things that people haven't touched in 20 years and that kind of thing. Um, but then because I'm always busy working, working towards the final goal, I never stop and write it down or talk about it for anyone else. Mm -hmm. uh, and I never thought that was a big deal until relatively recently when I realized that that's actually an interesting thing for other people to see. People actually want to know about how these things go together that they use. They want to know what the process was behind actually building these things. Mm -hmm. um, and for a whole lot of reasons, uh, including just to give them impetus because you know if you want to take apart old technology where do you even start you know you it really helps to have stories from other people that just just give you a little bit of a framework to hang stuff on um so to return a little more directly to your questions i can't put a date on when it's going to be done um i know what the major things are that remain in terms of what i have to build um so like i said there's a circuit board there's a housing uh it's going to need firmware updates and then there's pretty much a little bit of polish um, and a little bit of gluing stuff together. Of course, a little bit always means more than you think. But, you know, I've built products before. I know how that goes. Right. Um, but the question then is what's going to happen with the rest of my life? So I've got a kid at the moment. That's a really unpredictable drain on time. So <laughs> some, I've actually been surprised by how much free time I've had in the past couple of weeks. So I've really progressed the Satiator project a lot. Um, but I don't think that level of output is going to happen every week. Um, and so something that's able to sort of ebb and flow with, with the stuff that's necessary for life um, is an absolute necessity here. Gotcha. Well, it all makes it makes sense. It kind of puts everything together. And it does, you know, it does offer you a lot of options. Um, like, also, I imagine you could do things like, you know, your Patreon subscribers get first dibs on a pre-order and 15% off for something or, you know, you could do things to make the people that are, that subscribe to you on the page on Patreon really just, you know, get more than just the updates and the 
I, I hate to call it entertainment, but the entertainment of seeing your progress updates, because it really is. It's the same reason people like me watch science shows. You know, it is entertaining. It's educational, but entertaining. So yeah, 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 yeah um, I get it. It makes a, it does make sense. Yeah. So I mean, part of the part of the sort of challenge for me is, you know, I I don't have experience with crowdfunding. This is the the first sort of time for me. So finding out sort of where where to put things. Um, so at the moment, you know, if you if you're willing to lay down um, fifty bucks a month, which a surprising number of people are, are actually that generous, then you you will get beta hardware when that's available. Um, so that's that's a pretty neat reward, I think, because that's something that otherwise it would be you know me and a few testers that I've got lined up, and that's it. Um, that's kind of awesome for everybody, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm thinking about how to manage, you know, pre-orders or discounts or that kind of thing. Um, I just really have to get a little bit more of a handle on the economics of what the manufacturing is going to cost and that kind of thing before I can really commit to anything. I I'd, I'd really hate to put something out there and then have to retract it later because mm-hmm. uh, you know you no, end no, up. No, that totally makes sense. It's funny because there's um, you know. It, I understand why a lot of people would use Kickstarter, and I certainly understand the appeal and the marketing of it and everything, but uh, me personally, because I, I worked for a company before I started the website where we designed uh, medical computers, so I, it was a small company too, so everybody kind of helped each other out, so I saw every step from inception all the way up to installation support, recalls, everything, um, and for me personally, if I I wouldn't do a hardware Kickstarter until everything was done except final purchase order to manufacturer. So there'd be, you know, you get this, the production sample, you get everything ready, and then that, for me, would be, okay, well, the only thing stopping me from making, you know, 100, 500 of these is the cash to do so. And that that is when I would feel totally comfortable. But even then, you don't need to do Kickstarter. There's Tricellary, there's or just PayPal. <laughs> I mean, there's a million other things, but I certainly wouldn't do a hardware one without it. So I, I totally sympathize, because... You know, there's so many people that have unfortunately, you know, there's so many Kickstarters that have gone down where they're a year late, but nothing was their fault. Nothing at all. And it sucks because, you know, people complain and there's other Kickstarters where everything was their fault. <laughs> so it's it's better just to do it. And, and yeah, I, I agree. I agree with uh, with your perspective on that. Then that's pretty cool, especially because, you know, the the higher the higher tier is getting beta hardware is pretty awesome for everybody. You get you know you get to make different revisions. People get to try them. Um, you know, if they're investing that much money, they're obviously really excited about the project, which makes everybody happy. And you get more feedback, more people, more hands on. You know, that's kind yeah, of cool. absolutely. And that goes a long way towards you know covering my development costs because it's. You know, with a, a baby in the house, it, it's difficult to justify, you know, taking a bunch of money from the, the family budget to go and, you know, make game console stuff. So it really, ha- having even a small separate income stream just really helps separate those concerns and makes it sort of okay to work on. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, well, man, this was very cool. I'm really glad to get, you know, your insight into all this stuff. Um, is there any other projects coming up afterwards? Nah, so this, um, I mean, I'm sure there'll be other stuff in the future, but in uh, the next little while, it's really, really about closing out Associator. And then, you know, the side project that's been off, so like the little web interface thing, hopefully I'll release that someday. The USB controller emulator, that'll definitely be something people can pick up. Um, 
but yeah, so this, you know, the, the satiator sat on my shelf for a couple of years. Um, it was, I had all the core technology there. It played games beautifully. Um, but I just got totally hammered with, you know, my day job and everyday life and just didn't think I'd get back to it. I even had a panic and went, you know, what do I do? I'll chuck it to the wind. I'll just open source it. Um, but then I, I'd sort of realized um, that that wasn't actually going to work. It's such a complicated beast and so not quite there that no one's going to come and pick it up and get it working. It's, it's just too hard. There, there's points where it's actually not going to work to open source something. So yeah. then I went, well, it's either now or never, right? Either I finish it or it's going to be junked in the cupboard and all this work I put in will be for nothing. I went, well, obviously, I want to finish it. I, I don't want to toss away all that work and... So that's how I got to the current point. It's uh, I'm on the on the final stretch, and I'm going to keep plugging until it's done. That's awesome. Well, I'm I'm following the project. I have been since day one, and uh, you know I'll continue to provide updates through my weekly uh, podcast uh, if, when there's ever big steps in the project. And uh, yeah, I mean I'm just I'm excited, and I, I hope more people follow your lead and start doing these. You know, when possible, of course, doing these mod-free optical drive emulators because, you know, all of the ROM carts are awesome, but there's almost one for every cartridge-based system now. There's only a handful left, so we really need to start working on the CD-based ones and uh, and keep these things alive. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously let me know in case I miss it when uh, if there's a big release or something. And uh, if not, I'll keep everybody else posted. Well, thanks for your time and for your excitement. Like, it's the enthusiasm of people, all these strangers, yourself included, no offense, yeah. <laughs> who really make me realize that this is something that's worthwhile doing and worthwhile getting out there so people can actually pick it up and have it. So thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. Okay. No problem, man. My pleasure. Take care. You too.